friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and can you believe it's November already? I'm having trouble believing that, and Advent is just around the corner. Well, Advent is a wonderful season, and um, my particular hope for Advent is that I don't make myself crazy with all the all the little jobs that, that come to a wife and mother around Christmas time, but spend more time focusing on the the season of Advent. What a wonderful season that is for renewal and re-preparing our hearts to receive the Lord as we receive Him every year as a baby and every week at least uh, in the Eucharist. So making our, our hearts fertile all over again for that, that beautiful seed that was planted in Palestine over 2,000 years ago. Anyway, that's Advent and and I'm looking forward to it. But this week, we have a a great show for you today as we try every week to deliver a good conversation for you or two uh, conversations with with good consequences. We will be talking to Kelsey Wicks from the Catholic News Agency. She's creating a pro-life confraternity that she's inviting all of us to participate in. There's a prayer book that's in English and Spanish. It's It's been translated. It's very beautiful. I have it. And it's about uniting ourselves to Christ and, and the important battle that our country is fighting. We're fighting the battle on the right side, on the side of human dignity, on the side of uh, the, the very important tr- human and spiritual truth that all human beings are valuable and dignified simply because we are made in the image of God. She also has a gripping story to share with us about Christians struggling in Afghanistan since the American withdrawal there. Now they're living under Taliban rule and facing a very cold winter and starvation. That's uh, that's a very affecting story she will share with us. Before that, uh, we have my dear friend and TCA colleague Lee Sneed with us, alongside her husband, Carter Sneed. He is the director of the De Nicola Center at Notre Dame, and they just had a fabulous conference there that he will be telling us about. He's he's one of those American intellectuals that have so much to share with us on, on everything important on dignity of life issues. Welcome to the show, Carter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for sparing us the time. I know that you've been very, very busy this last couple of weeks. You had your famous conference that you have every year that I have never been to. I've, I don't think I've been personally invited. No, you have an open invitation. You don't need a personal invitation. <laughs> well, I had, I was suffering. With no matter where or when it is. <laughs> I was suffering horrible FOMO. Do you guys know FOMO? We yeah. do. Yeah. We have it sometimes you have it yourselves it's a terrible oh, oh some of my some of our listeners maybe don't have teenage kids it's fear of missing out it's a horrible experience i i don't <laughs> i don't recommend it to anyone so tell us about your conference carter and what's it about and what kind of people come and what wonderful things you discover so yeah the fall conference of the de nicola center for ethics and culture is our signature academic event it's actually the largest interdisciplinary academic event on notre dame's campus every year this year was our largest contingent ever we had a thousand registrants 
conference and 146 speakers. And every year they tackle a broad interdisciplinary theme. One year we did beauty, one year we did justice, one year we did friendship. This year we did human dignity. The title of the conference was I Have Called You By Name, Human Dignity in a Secular World. And we had a wide variety of very interesting speakers ranging from topics including literature and political theory and science and medicine. We had Alistair McIntyre speak. We had Jackie Rivers and Monique Chereau, whom you know, both of those folks, I understand. Wonderful people. And uh, and we heard from Lisa Schultz and Mary O'Callaghan on the question of dignity in persons with disabilities. Carter, I know you enjoyed Charlie Camosi's talk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Charlie Camosi gave a very interesting talk about his latest book called Losing Our Dignity, which is takes Pope Francis's concept of a throwaway culture and applies it to modern medical ethics and clinical medical ethics and how we, especially involving persons with disabilities, persons with who are who are suffering from dread diseases, whose quality of life might not seem that positive to people who are young uh, in the peak of health. And he basically calls us to reorient our thinking about, about what we owe to one another and to recover a kind of sense of human dignity that reminds us that just as Pope Francis says, we can't embrace a throwaway culture with respect to the environment. Similarly, as Pope Francis says, we can't embrace a throwaway culture as it applies to human beings. The Professor Camosi's uh, writing, uh, those who are suffering from illnesses, those who, who find themselves in a clinical context where, where people might not care for them the right way, the elderly, the disabled those suffering from dementia and so on. Carter, before Christian times and pagan times, there was no idea that the, simply by being human, there was some inherent worth to the person. That, that would lead to things like slavery and, and you know child killing or abandonment and all the terrible things that happen when you don't consider everybody full of dignity. But now we find ourselves maybe... Maybe we're falling prey to something very different, which is a, a sort of sentimentalism or utilitarianism, or we, we, we can't bear to think of people suffering, so we'd rather have them dead. Um, this is a very big, it, it almost seems to follow on the steps of, it goes with a post-Christian world, with a post-Christian modern world. How did we get to that place? Or do you agree with that? Well, so I, I certainly agree that we are in a moment where quality of life, and you can trace this back in the modern era to, to very, very dark writings by radical eugenicists in Germany prior to the Nazi takeover of government. There was a very famous book by Hawk and Binding called Lives Unworthy of Life about about um, basically the most fitting response to a person who lives in a very diminished physical state is to, is to end their life. And this is a, 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 this eugenic proposition was embraced fully by the Nazi regime. Uh, it was embraced by certain individuals in the United States, prominent individuals during the progressive era in the 30s and 40s. It fell fell into disrepute after, after all the, the horrific atrocities of the Nazis came to light. And it shifted to a kind of focus on autonomy or using autonomy as a kind of placeholder for dignity. And for those who have diminished autonomy, sometimes the most dignified thing to do would be to hasten their death. And so we end up actually, and paradoxically, with dignity being a prominent concept in favor of the right to die movement. So death with dignity is a phrase that you hear a lot. The death with Dignity Act is, I think, a you know, model statute that's been proposed to liberalize and legalize assisted suicide. So um, what I think is missing from this debate and why version of the concept of dignity, the dignity can't be a relative concept, certainly can't be a concept judged by third parties who evaluate others, you know, quality of life in favor of, um, uh, you know, according to their own standards and then taking steps to end those lives when they don't meet their own subjective standards, they regard them as burdensome. I think it's a real misuse of dignity, which I think 
you know, it, it, in, in its best form applies uh, across the board in an absolute way with, with equal respect to everyone. I know that as director of the center, the life of the center is a lot, very focused on hospitality throughout the year, especially at the time of the conference. There's lots of time for um, people to make new friends, see old friends, gather, have a good time. There are post receptions, you know, lunches, um, you have tailgates throughout the year. How does that, how does hospitality fit with human dignity and does friendship fit in with all that? How, how do those three things come together for you and your mission for the center? Yeah. So, I mean, we think about our center, our center, friendship underlies the full range of, of activities we do. It, it sort of animates and justifies everything that we do. So friendship, is I, I make, I make this argument in, in my book, what it means to be human, the case for the body and public bioethics, that as embodied beings, uh, we stand in a certain kind of relation to one another and what we depend on by virtue of our vulnerability and natural limits and, and, and finitude, um, we, what we need to live and flourish are what McIntyre calls works of uncalculated giving, graceful receiving. And to shore up the, and, the, and just take a concrete example to make it less abstract, the parent-child relationship is the sort of perfect example of that relationship. But I think it will tie into what we talked about a little bit on the question of adoption. Um, but with respect to networks of friends who are aiming to make the good of another their own good, that's what sustains these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. And there are virtues that the entire points to and that I augment a little bit in my book. I add some to the ones that he points out. Uh, they're called the virtues of acknowledged dependence. Hospitality is one of those virtues. Hospitality meaning welcoming stranger and providing for the stranger because he or she is a stranger, not because uh, you're seeking anything in return. But all the virtues of just generosity, hospitality, misericordia, gratitude, solidarity, tolerance of imperfection, open to the unbidden, uh, respect and dignity, all of which I think can be understood. So friendship understood in its Aristotelian sense and its Christian sense is making the good of another your own good without seeking anything. Mm -hmm. what, a, what, a, what a lovely definition of friendship. So many people, me included, sometimes <laughs> think of friends as people who entertain us or who can, who can add to our lives. That's a very different definition. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and friend, Lee Sneed, with her illustrious husband, Carter Sneed, director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame. He's also a law professor at the university. And uh, like a lot of the uh, American Catholic world, we are very hyper-focused on this case, Dobbs, which will be argued in front of the Supreme Court on December 4th. First, I wrote an amicus brief uh, with two other doctors, and I'm really proud of that. But you wrote one too, and I don't think we've had the chance to ask you about your brief and, and what you bring to the table. Oh, well, thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to point out, I'd like to thank you for the brief that you wrote. It's absolutely wonderful brief. And uh, and one of the doctors that was on the brief with you, Dr. Monique Chereau, was a keynote speaker at our conference. That's right. So, uh, and, and it's it's a wonderful brief from the perspective of physicians and those in the art of, of medicine and bring to light the... The, the even greater truth that we understand about the, the, the biological and moral standing of the unborn child. So my brief, um, I co-authored with Marianne Glendon, who also was a keynote speaker this past weekend at the fall conference of the Nicholas Center. Um, our brief uh, made the case, uh, we sort of made three arguments. One argument was that the decisions in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which are the Supreme Court decisions that constitute the law of abortion in America, 
uh, are not connected to the Constitution's text, history, or tradition. They have nothing to do with any of that. It's entirely made up of seven justices in 1973 and the bare majority of five to four justices. Even though the justices in Roe and Casey disagree with each other about the, the grounding good of what uh, the right to abortion is is, is nested in, uh, and Roe talked about privacy, but in Casey they talk about liberty. No, they they also disagreed about um, what the what the rules should be. There was a trimester framework that Roe announced that was discarded in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in favor of a binary pre versus post viability abortion framework. Prior to viability, uh, the state is not permitted to quote unduly burden a woman's right to abortion, nor which means that it cannot deprive her of the ultimate authority to choose abortion to make a decision for abortion prior to viability. But then after viability, the state can regulate the abortion in some way, abortion. In in some ways, but always has to defer to the abortion provider uh, who, if he or she invokes some aspect of a woman's well-being, that overrides whatever the state law might be. So we actually have, in America, one of the most permissive regimes in the world, a right to abortion throughout nine months of pregnancy. And uh, that puts us in such company as North Korea and Cuba and Vietnam and China, other human rights uh, abusing nations. And uh, and so that's shameful, I think. And, and, that, and that's something that Marianne Glennon is... Is, uh, brings to the table as a comparative law scholar. He made the case that most countries around the world are allowed to govern themselves on the question of abortion. Uh, we have not been permitted to do that since 1973. And, and most nations around the world, when they do govern themselves on abortion, even when they're more progressive than the United States in other respects, almost every single country in the world has more restrictive abortion laws than we do. Almost every country in the world bans abortion at you know at 12 weeks of pregnancy or earlier or or, or entirely and so that's uh it, we're quite an outlier and so we we argue that the roe and casey have nothing to do with the law and then we our second argument is that the principles of stare decisis uh which is a prudential rule that judges should think carefully before they overturn prior badly decided precedents uh, those principles actually cut in favor of overturning roe and casey and then finally we make the argument and this is sort of based in my own work that what Roe and Casey do is they graft onto the Constitution a constitutionally unwarranted and false vision of human identity and human flourishing. They put mother and unborn baby against each other in a kind of narrative of strife and conflict with a zero-sum conflict over scarce resources. And as a result, they abandon the woman and her vulnerability and her need and only provide her with a, a license to use lethal force against the baby, her own child. And that is a uh, humanly false description of the of, of how life begins in the human species and the, the the relationship between mother and child, but not just between mother and child, but also between mother, child, family, and community. When a mo- mother and child are in crisis, what a good community does, what a good family does, what a good nation does, is rush to their aid, provide them with all the help, support, and care, and protection that the government and the private sector can provide before, during, and after that born. So with that in mind, Carter, this phrase, restoring the people's elected representatives, the authority to care rightly for mothers, children, and families. What does that look like? Um, what are we looking at in the post-real world about you know, what can the government do? What can we do as a country to help these the most vulnerable? No, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and so the first thing to mention is that and for the listeners, I'm sure many of them know this already, but what Roe does and what Casey does is it prevents the elected branches of government from protecting moms and babies. It obviously protects, uh, it, it requires, it claims the Constitution forbids the elected branches of government, state and federal government, legislature, executive branch, from extending the basic protections of the law to children. And that's uh, shameful. 
Um, and so the first thing that we see in a post-war world is the freedom of governments, state and local governments and federal government, to protect unborn children from lethal violence. And I think we can expect to see that in a lot of states. Uh, I think other states will probably not go down that pathway. And we've seen already, like New York and California and Illinois, have anticipatorily embraced very permissive abortion regimes in in, in, in the expectation, I think, that they believe that Roe and Casey will be overturned, which I, I agree. I think they will be overturned. I think this time next year we'll be talking about a post-Roe landscape. So that's only part of the question. Though. Protecting unborn babies is only part of the question. We also have moms and families. And there are a lot of ways to do that. I think we have to do some hard thinking. One thing that's, that's that you don't see reported is Texas, which has uh, passed a pretty <clears throat> interesting heartbeat law, which has a very complex and novel mechanism of enforcement that's currently before this report wasn't merely to de- design to protect unborn children, but at the same time, the Texas legislature also authorized hundreds of thousands of dollars to care for moms and babies. And so you have to, you, so what, what is, we're incumbent upon all of us who care about unborn children and their moms is to not just seek the protection of unborn children, but also to pursue laws and policies that, that protect moms, babies, and families and help moms to care for babies and family and dads to care for babies. It's important that we mention dads in this kind of a conversation as well and families, families and communities, <clears throat> but also to uh, promote the flourishing of, of everybody involved in this conflict. And so that's, that's what I think that looks like. And I will say one quick thing here at the Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture, we've just begun a new project called Women and Children First, Imagining a Post-Roe World, which is an interdisciplinary, Notre Dame's interdisciplinary and comprehensive response to the coming population and the current population of moms, babies, and families, born and unborn, that need our help. It involves uh, working on questions relating to housing, education, health care, civil rights, prison reform, um, as well as um, uh, a variety of other aspects, religious freedom, international human rights, uh, racial discrimination, all these different questions we have to grapple with to create a world in which moms, babies, dads, families can flourish. Uh, and what's, what's that going to look like and, and what's it called? It involves a collaboration here at Notre Dame with partners at Notre Dame. We have several centers and institutes at Notre Dame that work on issues of housing, poverty alleviation, education reform, and so on. And the very first step that we've undertaken is to partner with one of those institutes here at Notre Dame that does uh, macroeconomic analysis of poverty programs. And we're focusing on the National Network of Maternal Group Homes to see what best practices are so that we can give them feedback on what's working, what's not working, and, and then to publicize and share information about what's working. Carter, when, when abortion decoupled uh, sex from uh, childbearing, it also decoupled, I think it also wrecked the friendship between men and women. And, when, when, and I'm, I want to use that beautiful phrase, uncalculated giving and graceful acceptance. It made men not uncalculated givers and didn't make them gracefully accepted of the of a woman's fertility of of the beauty of the way her body um turns love into children right and i wonder if you imagine a post-row world that could reverse we could see some reversal of this break in the friendship between men and women that abortion in my mind created yeah so uh, as a law professor i you know i generally think about these things in terms of law and public policy and as you say one of the public policy consequences and legal consequences of severing sex from childbearing and parenthood, as abortion does, and especially vesting the sole decision-making in the woman as a constitutional matter, men, wrongly, of course, feel justified in abandoning women Mm -hmm. away from them and say, it's your choice, it's your body, 
It's also your expense and it's your future and I can walk away because I have nothing to do with this. And that to me is part of the atomizing and isolating effect. And if there were a way, you know, if there were a way to rebind men and women together, not just culturally and socially, which of course is essential, but also legally and as a matter of public policy, if you, if, and you know, sometimes you hear from abortion rights advocates, oh, really? Well, if you support uh, unborn babies, shouldn't you support men being absolutely on the hook to care for that mother and that baby throughout that child's life? The answer is, yeah, I'll take that deal. Yeah. Can, of course mm-hmm. I will. Absolutely, we should do that. And so we might take a look at how the law incentivizes uh, men to honor their responsibilities as opposed to disincentivizing them responsibilities. All of us, uh, the three of us, plus my husband, <laughs> who's not in the conversation, but I'm sure he wishes he could be, are people who have who have stepped into that breach of where uh, where a child, the parent's child, the, the child's parents can't raise the child for whatever reason, uh, our, our children for different reasons. Uh, adoption uh, like my husband likes to hold when we go to our when we go to um, those demonstrations on the street, he likes to hold a sign that says "Adoption is a loving option." Because to him, adoption is this this fabulous blessing that uh, that solves that terrible problem of of a child uh, being severed from from That's his. A sign our son always chooses to hold too. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. it's 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 the most beautiful sign. How do you see in a post row world the adoption um will it gain new ground will it will it become even more of a loving option i hope so i mean i i i would the person who knows most about the question of the relationship between adoption abortion abortion minded women and this is is really is lee more than me and so i don't want to i don't want to defer the question or, or not answer the question but what i would do is i would say my wife has studied this question very carefully, and I'd be interested in what her thoughts are in terms of how to think about the relationship between abortion and adoption and what might be done in the future on that front. Um, well, I think that we need to do, as pro-lifers, I think we need to do a better job of promoting adoption as as a as a, an important mothering decision. Like, it's actually, I think women think if they're doing that, then they're abandoning their motherly mm-hmm. duties. But it actually could be maybe the first, the only, and maybe the last decision they make, but the most important decision they make to place their child whom they love very much with a family who can provide for them. And so I think that that's something we need to do. We need to uh, shake any stigmas because there are, I mean, of course there are stigmas from lots of different reasons from the baby scoop era from, you know, when single parenthood wasn't, you know, as socially acceptable as it is now and supported sometimes. And I think that we need to fight that stigma and it should be, I don't know if, you know, personal information needs to be shared as in shout your birth motherhood or something, but it's, I think it's something that we definitely need to destigmatize and make it a positive choice. And so the children of adoption think of it as a positive choice as I mean, I think our children do. And I know Gracie, yours do too, but to to throw it back to you, Carter, uh, Gracie and I've talked about this before on the show and we've had other women guests on the show talk about it. We don't always hear about adoption from fathers Mm. as often. And what can you tell us, like any insights for those considering adoption, thinking about St. Joseph marking this great year? Yeah, no, that's a really fantastic question. And St. Joseph plays such a significant role in how dads should think about adoption. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said in terms of stigmatizing being a birth mother and and, as, uh, and, and also celebrating birth mothers. Uh, we don't need to make them breach their own privacy if they don't want to. We can, in the abstract, celebrate birth mothers and elevate yeah. birth mothers. And I think that's important to do because you're right. It's an extraordinary gift that a birth mother gives an amazing act of love and selflessness to provide for their child by making, uh, by binding that child to 
to an to a genuine case of belonging with a real mom and a real dad who are by operation of adoption. I mean, I think Russell Moore says it best that it's important for us not to think about adoption simply as a rescue operation, not simply as a healing of a wound that doesn't go away, but an actual genuine way of forming a family that's real and permanent provides a child with a place grafting a new branch onto a tree. I love that. And, uh, and that's, and, and a lot of people who aren't, who, who see adoption from a distance or arm's length, it's, I don't understand that. I think they see, oh, this is a, what a, and you and I hear this, Grace, mm-hmm. you probably hear it too. Somebody's like, oh, gosh, what an amazing thing. You're so generous to adopt <laughs> that. I mean, like, I, I feel like saying, well, you're so generous, generous not to, you know, to weigh your own children. You know, I mean, like, like it, it, just, it just feels <laughs> weird. Abandon them at the side of the road. It doesn't feel like an act of generosity to love your own child. Right. And, and an adopted child is your own child, despite their history, uh, your yeah, biological ties, you're replacing, uh, you're replacing uh, history with a new history, not replacing, but building on to a history creates a future for the child. But as far as St. Joseph goes, I mean, it's really important to point out that adoption is central to our identity as Christians. We are adopted by God. We are, and, and the word that, that St. Paul uses about, um, and he uses the word adoption all the time in, in his epistles, talks about um, we're no longer slaves, but but but, uh, but free, and we're, we're children of God now. He used the phrase huyuaphasia, which means taking someone who is not entitled to being in a lineage, placing them in a place of sonship or daughtership. And that's what happens to us as Christians from um, uh, the New and the Old Testament. Um, and uh, and the most extraordinary example of this is St. Joseph, because the kingship of Christ himself, the fact Messiah stands in the line of King David. Only st- he, Christ only stands in the line of King David through Saint Joseph. Saint mm. Joseph is the one who's related to King David, and so that means that Saint Joseph is, in a very real sense, Jesus's father. And and that's something that I think we should we should take seriously. And Saint Joseph is such a wonderful role model for all of us fathers. You would like me to be more quiet the way that Saint Joseph is quiet. <laughs> Um, Except when I don't want you to be quiet, of course. <laughs> right, right. But, I, um, I wonder if, if St. Joseph changed light bulbs. I'd be interested to know. It's one of his talents. It's one of the few things to do. Um, but in any event, the point is is that I think that um, adoption is a way, way of forming. And St. Pope John Paul II, you know, gave this beautiful speech to adoptive families years ago and said that I want you to understand that there's nothing, the family formed by adoption is no less family than the formed by biological connection. And that's something we have to remind ourselves, we have to remind our children and, and our friends. Well, thank you for those inspiring words, Carter. I, I really do like to hear from the fatherly perspective on adoption. I know my husband brings a real a real fatherly heart to adoption that is very, very different from mine, just as valuable and, and, and just as just as grateful. The, the grateful ones in this uh, in the adoption uh, world are the parents. 100% yes. of the time. We're the ones who've been incredibly blessed. I know I know I'm always marveling at the miracle of, of my daughter's presence in our life. I mean, the, the least likely thing on earth is that she should be my daughter and my husband's daughter. But there she is. So God must love us very much. And and thank you so much, both of you, for, for joining us. It's, it's It was a pleasure to have you. And and we will pray for um, the initiatives of, the, of your center and, and of all your wonderful projects going forward. So thank you, Carter. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gracie.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here now with Kelsey Wicks for Catholic News Agency. And she is also the woman behind a pro-life confraternity that I think we should all be part of, especially as our nation is considering abortion jurisprudence, abortion law, with the Supreme Court hearing the big Mississippi abortion ban case coming up. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Well, thank you so much, Gracie, for having me. Before we get into the the confraternity, which I want to hear all about, I'm very interested in that. Before we get into that, you wrote a very, very moving piece that brought tears to my eyes in the National Catholic Register about the fate of the Afghan people. Tell our listeners, please, about this piece and and what you were were hoping to communicate. Well, thank you, um, Gracie, for those kind words. It really was a heartfelt piece. I've been living the story because when the Afghanistan uh, situation sort of spiraled into into crisis at the end of August, we were contacted by several Afghan Christians just begging for help. And so I opened the email one day and, and here was this plea. I'm a Christian. I have no help but you please, can you do something? So we we attempted to do what we could during that week using our, our reporting connections um, amongst humanitarian organizations to try to find a way out for this this person who, who sent the original email, um, who goes by the pseudonym Kareem. You know, Kareem had this just incredibly difficult story. And what I realized was that Kareem's story was just a window into to the story of all of Afghanistan. So his father and his brother were murdered. He was a Christian and he fled his his native place in order to, to find a way out of the, the country. His mother was disappeared when she refused to give his location because she knew as a Christian that he would be next on the hit list. And so, you know, he, he had this very chaotic week attempting to find a humanitarian plane out of Kabul. He survived the suicide bombing at the Abbey Gate where over 200 people died. 13 of them U.S. military members. I mean, it was just a heart-wrenching situation. And I was WhatsApping with him actually as the blast went off. And I was also WhatsApping with another Afghan Christian at that time. And he said, there's been a blast. And then I WhatsApped to Kareem, who was near the airport, you know, who, who was at a gate. And I, I, I wasn't sure where the blast had taken it. And then I said, you know, what's happening? No answer. No answer. For three hours until he finally said, I'm alive. And I thought you were dead. You know, we just finished praying a chaplet of divine mercy for the repose of his soul. And then he and then he WhatsApped and said, you know, it must have been your prayers. I'm I'm still alive, but I was at that gate. So through all of this, you know, we had been attempting to help him. And as a consequence, I've been deeply enmeshed in, in the unfolding Afghanistan crisis. And it's no longer just Kareem that we're concerned about. It's, it's half of the nation. I mean, David Beasley, the, the UN World Food Program head, recently just said that this is the worst humanitarian crisis on earth. They're anticipating in this winter that 23 million, more than half of the Afghanistan population could die this winter. Oh. And it's not even due to the... Kelsey, why aren't we hearing any of this on the news? I, I feel like I feel like <laughs> Afghanistan was swallowed up by the news and they moved on. It, it became, it was a complete disaster for the current administration and a shame, a shameful episode. And maybe that's why it's been, we don't hear anything about this, but reading your piece, hearing what you just said about starvation, the terrible time that people like Kareem have been experiencing. Why isn't this everywhere and, and the front pages? I, I think that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. And I'd like to connect it back to that question about charity. You know, Pope Francis at one point said that the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. And 
I find that there has been a demonic level of indifference regarding the plight of these people whose lives we as Americans directly impacted. You know, I, I understand when some people say, you know, we can't intervene in, in every situation that's a crisis in every place. I, I disagree with it, but I understand why they're saying it. You know, we can't solve the problems in Myanmar or why is this our, our duty? For Afghanistan, it is our duty because we, we started it, you know, and we 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 definitely played into, I should say, the the drama of the unfolding consequences of a precipitous withdrawal. And it is our our responsibility, I think, to assist in in this in this grave reason in in this grave grave crisis, at least from a Christian perspective, if not from an American one. It does it does seem to me that the United States. Um our public, pol- our our foreign policy sometimes is very focused on cultural inroads into other people's ways of seeing the world. A lot of cultural imperialism, and not so much protection of the world's vulnerable, which I think would be a much better place for us to spend our energies. How do you? What do you think about that? I definitely think that <laughs> that the the most vulnerable here are, are certainly the ones that are suffering from the foreign policy that we have chosen. I mean, there are unfolding reports that I get day in day out, firsthand accounts secondhand accounts from people who are involved as humanitarian organizations helping these people of grave crimes against humanity, targeted assassinations, house-to-house operations to kill Christians, draining of a a recent canal in in Jalalabad, found 17 people beheaded with stones tied to their bodies. I mean, I don't know how we can look the other way in this situation, given our our previous involvement. I suppose it'll be like those those other episodes in in our history when we've decided only much later that we should have been more involved and, and been more protective. Yes. And I, you know, I really want to, to fight against the the sense um, of futility that can come at times when you when you read or absorb the news a lot you know it, it is true that that the US government has a particular responsibility to act in this situation and in fact it's been very difficult for these individual human rights actors to assume the role that a State Department normally plays so that goes without saying. But I think also for the ordinary listener, for the ordinary Christian and Catholic, it's it's important to realize that you have agency in this. Prayer is the single most important thing we can do in the world. Now we need, as the book of James says, to put that prayer into action and not just say, you know, stay warm, good friend, and then walk on. You have agency. We need to be praying about this. We need to be speaking about this. We need to find a way to get food to these people. We need to be um, holding them in our hearts as, as this as this continues. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Kelsey Wicks. She is with the Catholic News Agency, and she's been telling us about the terrible plight of so many Christians in Afghanistan, and actually Afghans in general who are facing the possibility of mass starvation in the near future. And Kelsey, you you say very very truthfully uh, that that prayer is a is a great um, a great uh, arm that we have that, that we can fight on behalf of of the Afghans and other suffering people and. And on that vein, I want you to tell us about another way that we can that we can pray for something important here in the United States. Even as much as much as we pray for people outside, we also have pressing um, we have pressing issues here in the U.S. Uh, when it comes to dignity of life. Yes, and I just to link the two together, Gracie. You know, at one point, Kareem had emailed. And had said, you know, does my life not matter? And I spent a lot of time reflecting upon that. He asked me to, to fight for him as though he was my own brother or father, you know, my own family member and, and blood. 
and I and I started to to tell his story, and I realized how effective and powerful this could be. And then I started to think about, you know, the unborn who similarly do not have um, someone telling their story who whose voice, you know, is is not able to speak out about the, the terrible atrocities that are happening to them. I, I really wanted to... Um, to mobilize people into a prayer movement um, surrounded surrounded um, for the protection of life in the United States and elsewhere in in the world perhaps if it if it goes global so so to say and that's a it's a pro-life prayer confraternity that I'm that I'm attempting to start it's just in its infancy um, but I you know I had several friends who uh, weren't able to ever go to the, the clinic to pray or to give witness. And, um, you know, several of them are moms with young children and four children, five children, and they just they couldn't go down there due to time or they were worried about exposing their children to the yells and, the, you know, the, the sort of hate that can sometimes surround even peaceful witness at a clinic. And I realized, you know what, we need a we need a way for everyone to participate in this pro-life movement, pro-life prayer movement specifically, without um, without any sort of physical requirements. So I, I developed um, a, a pro-life uh, prayer regime, prayers for every day, that any person can say in order to to um, really put their money where their mouth is, put their heart um, where the Lord's heart is, and um, and to pray every day for the cause of life. Now, it also, uh, the confraternity includes frequent communion and confession. Why is that? Well, I think there's a really beautiful connection between um, the Eucharist and the preservation for life. Actually, one of the um, sacramental graces that the Catechism talks about from frequent reception of the Holy Communion is commitment to the poor. And the poorest among us, right, the most vulnerable in our society, at least, is is the unborn. There's this beautiful commitment between reception of the Eucharist and an understanding of of the high dignity of of what it means to be uh, alive. And um, we live mostly when we when we live in Christ. It involves a, a commitment to confession every other week, and then frequent Holy Communion for the gaining of indulgences. And um, and on Thursdays, every Thursday, um, a, a time in adoration before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. You have a prayer booklet that, that goes with it, and, and it's very beautiful. It has beautiful images. I really, I like that the that the, the face of, of the book is uh, the, an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Why did you choose Our Lady uh, for this? Oh, well, I think she, we could say more properly that she chose herself. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, she, she is just unquestionably the, the patroness of, of pro-life and, and um, you know, more mother than queen. So this is, this is just a beautiful thing for all those, a beautiful devotion to cultivate for all those prospective mothers that are, that are battling fear, that are battling poverty, that are battling ideology that tells them that it's, it's better to give up their child than, than to, than to sacrifice for the cause of life. And so, you know, I think she has a personal pull in, in my life. I'm, I'm consecrated to Our Lady of Guadalupe. I, I love her dearly. But I think she she has a pull on all of our lives for for the reason of of her her motherliness. 
I like what you say that about her, her motherliness and how she's more mother than queen. It really rings true for me. In her images, she has uh, an indication of pregnancy, as they say, with her with the way that her her robe is tied. And she does give us a wonderful understanding of, of hospitality to life and of acceptance of, of the divine will that, you know, if children come into the world, they are divinely willed. There is no human being that was not divinely willed. And how wonderful that, you know, that her great fiat is something that we can imitate and also help the whole world imitate. Oh, yeah. She's she's just spectacularly unique amongst all the, the Marian apparitions, in my opinion. You know, the, the, the halo that surrounds her whole body because Christ is in the womb rather than the, the halo that surrounds her head in many of her other apparitions when, when she appears not as, as pregnant, but, but already as, as later, later in life, shall we say, is, is just, is just a, a great testimony to her uniqueness, her beauty, her grandeur, um, what she calls us to. You know, I mean, I often reflect upon how unique it is. It, we, we talk about important people changing the world or governments, and we think all this is happening. And then in the, in the backwater a town in, in Palestine, in the middle of nowhere yes. in the Roman Empire, <laughs> this this 14-year-old girl, you know, changes human history more than anyone yes. else. You know, I mean, when we think about the mustard seed and, and Christ is that mustard seed implanted in her, it takes such a small amount of faith, such a small amount of charity, such a small amount of, of love, of receptivity to grace to change the whole of human history. And if every mother could be open to the beauty of that, that subtle suggestion and that great witness of Our Lady, think of how different the world would be. Now, how can people join the confraternity or become part of this movement? Well, um, as I said, it's really in its infancy. So, um, it doesn't have canonical standing yet as a confraternity or anything like that. So I'm working on just um, starting it in Denver. I've been speaking at a couple of, of parishes uh, where I live and work and um, helping people to, to just begin with um, adopting this sort of, uh, as they say in monastic life, aurorium of prayer, this this um, daily rule of life um, in terms of the the frequent reception of Holy Communion, the the frequent attendance at the sacrament of confession and then these daily prayers so the easiest way to to do that is just to to send an email to me if you're interested or your parish would be interested prolifeprayerbook at gmail.com would be um, the way to get a hold of what we're doing here in denver and and see if we can spread it somewhere else with this prayer prayer life you know i spent a number of years in in religious life and what i loved about it was the aurorium you know it really built in a secure place for prayer and when i left religious life i it was so so difficult for me to find like my moorings like oh my gosh like i'm not going to the chapel with 300 other women you know <laughs> what do i do how do i how do i make this happen every day and there's a beautiful conversion that happens in your life when you realize that that every moment of it belongs to your knees, you know, and and every moment can be a prayer. As St. Paul says, pray always. Um, but, you know, you can't pray always if you don't pray sometimes. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. <laughs> so we really have to set aside specific times and specific ways that we can that we can meet our Lord and talk to Him heart to heart. So I, I did try to also taking the, the best of what I'd learned in religious life, you know, find a few anchor points um, for for each and every day tied 
tied to the tradition of the church. Well, thank you, Kelsey, for being with us today. And thank you for, for the confraternity that you're building. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation. There is the Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday as we celebrate him as king of the universe and enter into and seek to learn from the dialogue he has with Pontius Pilate on Good Friday morning. I apologize that I am recording this in an airport, and so I can't do anything about the background noise. But even here, Christ is meant to be king. I'd like to focus on two points. Pilate begins his conversation with Jesus, we'll hear in the gospel, by asking the question that Jews had been asking and trying to answer about Jesus for the previous couple of years. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, do you say this on your own or have others told you about me? Pilate tried to deflect the question, saying, I'm not a Jew, am I? But the question cannot be ducked and it cannot really be answered by what others have told us. Jesus came into the world to establish a personal, saving relationship with everyone he has created. As the good shepherd would leave the 99 behind and go after the one sheep who is lost. He is interested in a hundred out of a hundred. It's not enough for him to be the king of others or even the king of the cosmos. It's not enough for the Pope or the priest or the catechism to proclaim him sovereign Lord. It doesn't suffice that we dedicate churches to him or whole religious institutes under the title of Christ the King. It's not adequate, in other words. Even that the whole church in heaven or on earth proclaims him as the Savior and Lord. Jesus wants each of us personally and intimately to say and mean, Thy kingdom come rather than just doing so because others have told us about this reality. Jesus died in order to become your king and my king and wants to have that life-giving relationship with each of us. He wants to become the most decisive reality of our life. And so the first response we're called to have this Sunday is to ask ourselves honestly whether we have that relationship with him. Is he king of our time, not just Sunday, but each day? Is he king of our family and our love life? Is he king of our work? Is he king of our leisure? Is he king over our money? Is he king of our mind, heart, soul, and strength? He is objectively the one through whom all things are made. It's a fact that he's king and Lord of all. But if we subjectively, freely, wholeheartedly, lovingly chosen him to be our king, to submit to and follow him with trust, with love, and with joy, if we have not yet established him as king of all parts of our life, then we really do not have the relationship with him that is right and just. And this Sunday he wants us to establish it. This thought is conceptually simple, but morally hard. For us to name Christ as king is, in this world, not like rooting for a championship team because they're the winners. By worldly logic, it might indeed seem crazy to pronounce Christ as king. The last thing Jesus looked like as he hung upon the cross on Good Friday was a royal. He was bathed in blood, not clothed with royal purple. He was hammered to a cross, not seated on a bejeweled throne. He was crowned with thorns, not capped with gold and diadems. To ridicule him and the Jews in general, Pilate would later order that an inscription in three languages be placed above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Rather than pay him homage, most in the crowd mocked him. The chief priests mocked him. The Roman soldiers and passers-by mocked him. Even the thief on his left mocked him. And all of them mocked him in the same way. If you are truly king of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ, come down from that cross and save yourself. Such visible force was the only demonstration of kingly power they could comprehend. That's why St. Paul would later say that Christ crucified, Jesus crowned with thorns and mounted upon the throne of Calvary, was a scandal to the Jews and utter lunacy to the Greeks, but nevertheless was the full manifestation of God's kingly power and wisdom. 
To name him as our king is to recalibrate everything to his way of reigning. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom does not belong to this world and is not here. But we often try to frame his kingdom in earthly categories. All the way until the resurrection, the apostles had a false idea about the kingdom and what it meant to be in the king's service, incessantly competing against each other for the greatest position in the messianic administration they imagined Jesus was about to inaugurate. After James and John had asked Jesus for the privilege to be his prime ministers, to sit on his immediate right and left as he assumed his reign, Jesus used it as a lesson for all the apostles who similarly were hungering after the same worldly positions. As well as for all of us, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them in this way. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To proclaim Christ's kingship, to enter into his kingdom, To be his right hand, to be his cabinet minister, means to be willing to give our life as a ransom for God and others, to serve rather than be served, to give rather than get. That's why it's not sufficient to listen to what others are saying about Jesus. We have to proclaim him king ourselves. And this is not just a notional or verbal consent, but something we have to live. The second part of the dialogue I'd like to examine comes later, and it's connected. After Jesus said he was king of a kingdom not of this world, and Pilate followed up by querying, then you are a king, Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Once again, Pilate tried to duck the personal thrust of Jesus' words by asking rhetorically, what is truth? But we can't escape the meaning of Jesus' words. Jesus' whole mission was to remind us of the real, real world and help us to live in it. Earlier in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus had said, If you remain in my word, you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This personal knowledge of the truth, in other words, is the difference between slavery and freedom, between living a lie and living right. A little later, Jesus would further specify that truth isn't just a correspondence between what's in the mind and what's in the world, but it's a personal relationship. Saying during the Last Supper, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus came not just to teach us truths, but to ground us in the real, real world by allowing us to enter into relationship with him is the foundation of our whole existence. The big battle in the world, the war between light and darkness, good and evil, life and death, is between truth and falsity, between Christ the King and Satan, whom Jesus calls a liar and the father of lies. To proclaim Christ as King is not just to announce the truth, but to commit ourselves to the truth in a context in which the Prince of Demons tries to inseminate and seduce us to live the lie. If those in Christ's kingdom are those who belong to the truth and listen to Christ's voice, then we must seek the truth, find the truth, love the truth, live the truth, and share the truth. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Satan's is a dominion of lies, spin, slander, deception, and self-deception. When Pope Pius XI established the Solemnity of Christ the King 96 years ago in 1925, 
He did so to counteract the virulent falsehoods being propagated by the communists. Militant atheists who, in proclaiming that God didn't exist, were essentially announcing that truth doesn't exist. Without God in the truth anchoring human existence in reality, they were capable of distorting human anthropology made in God's image and likeness and reordering all existence to their power. Just eight years before Pius XI instituted the fees, Bolshevik communism had risen to free the people from the opium of faith in God, which they mendaciously claimed was only a means to keep people subjugated. In Mexico, there had been a similar revolution against the old order. One of the first results was anti-clerical persecution based on a militant atheism. Religious orders were banned. Churches, monasteries, convents, and other religious buildings were confiscated. The church needed to go underground, and many Catholic priests, religious, and lay people were martyred. Since there was really no God, they stated, the churches and Christians were just seeking greater foundation for their pursuit of political power, it was claimed. Over the course of the last century, attacks against the truth have grown. For example, in the philosophical movement of relativism, which in a self-contradictory way proclaims as a truth that there is no truth, and particularly in moral relativism, which says that it's wrong to believe that there is a right and wrong. But now we're facing a particular cultural assault on the truth based on emotivism, based on the exaltation of feelings above truth. It's happening in gender ideology, with which many are trying to indoctrinate our culture and especially our kids. Gender ideology says that essentially our identity has nothing to do with our biology because they claim male and female are just social attributions given to us at birth. We are, they say, whoever we want to be, whoever we say we are. There's no real truth about what sex we are, what age we are, or what our attributes are. If we want to be the Pope or the Queen of England, we shouldn't let reality stand in the way. This is not to say that we shouldn't be full of compassion and love for anyone who sincerely but erroneously thinks that he's a woman trapped in a man's body or a man trapped in a woman's or a pangender, cisgender or gender queer trapped in either. We know such people need help and they deserve our love. But we do them no service to pretend with them that they're not male or female, that there's no meaning to biology. We, in fact, facilitate their living a lie about themselves and make all of society complicit in propagating that lie. Christ the King came to testify to the truth. It says that those who belong to the truth listen to his voice, the voice of him who in the beginning made us male and female. The solemnity of Christ the King is occasion for us to reaffirm not just the fact of his kingdom, but to commit ourselves to living the truth and helping others to live it in the context of powerfully ensconced untruths that will injure people in this world and beyond. This Sunday, let us say on our own that Christ is our King. Let us receive the full truth about the human person he entered the world to enflesh and announce, and then with his help, live that truth, love that truth, and share that truth. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 